Just what are Pakistan's elections all about this time? A country that's broke, beset by radical insurgents on the front lines of global warming. It needs leadership its citizens can trust. Thursday's vote, though, follows a familiar pattern of revolving door politics. Out, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who first lost his coalition, then his freedom, after feuding with the military-backed establishment. In, a scion of Pakistani politics, Nawaz Sharif, whose return from exile was made possible by a Supreme Court rule change that enabled him to run despite a corruption conviction. The same Sharif, once ousted in a coup, is back in favor. Why? What's the military's calculation in all this? And how does a youthful nation break out of the dynastic politics of old? The third player in Thursday's election is 37-year-old Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, son of assassinated Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. Why do dynasties dominate so in Pakistan? And what's the alternative? Today in the France 24 debate, we're asking whether it will be revolving door politics again for Pakistan. Joining us from London, Aisha Sadika. Senior Research Fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Thank you for being with us. All right, Rashid. Uh, Ayesha uh, Siddiqui setting up uh, the video link connection. Uh, joining us uh, from Birmingham in England, uh, Samin Mohsin Ali, Assistant Professor of International Development at the University of Birmingham. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. From Chicago, he's a former advisor to Imran Khan. Azim Ibrahim is director of the New Lines Institute think tank. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure uh, to welcome back former uh, French consul, French ambassador uh, to Pakistan, former diplomat stationed in Islamabad, Jean-Yves Berthaud. Thank you for being with us. The uh, France 24 debate, where you can react on the hashtag F24Debate. The hard reality of Pakistan's volatility made clear on the eve of the vote, the borders with Afghanistan and Iran shut after at least 30 were killed, at least two explosions, both in rest of Baluchistan province, one targeting an independent candidate, the other from a religious party, a reminder of uh, the rise these days in militant attacks. Eliza Herbert has more. It's been an election campaign marred by violence. And on the eve of the national vote in Pakistan, more has unfolded. Two separate bomb blasts went off on Wednesday, leading to dozens of fatalities and injuries. The first outside an independent candidate office in Pishin. An hour or so later, at the office of an ultra-conservative party, 150 kilometres away. A motorbike rider approached our office and our colleagues tried to stop him, but they couldn't and there were no police officers around. After that blast happened, the result was that 10 workers of Jamiat Alami Islami were martyred, and many more were injured. Both explosions took place in the north of the Balochistan province, not far from the Afghanistan border. The province has seen a surge of militant attacks in recent months from groups including the Pakistani Taliban and the separatist Balochistan Liberation Army that have warned people about voting in the polls. Responsibility is yet to be claimed for the attacks, but authorities say the election will go ahead. It will be the country's first general election since 2018 and comes at a time of both uncertainty and apathy. Allegations of poll rigging have sprung up in recent months and the country's former Prime Minister Imran Khan remains behind bars. His party barred from the polls. 
People were expecting new political faces to emerge after the election and bring a change in the country, but the faces that have come forward will not bring change in our lives. Tens of thousands of police and military officers were deployed outside more than 90,000 polling stations on Wednesday, with strong security expected to continue throughout the election. And I think the video link is now up with Ayesha Siddiqui in London. Thank you for being with us here in the France 24 uh, debate. Uh, Ayesha, uh, before I ask you about uh, <coughs> what that bystander said about uh, the uh, uh, familiar faces uh, in this poll, uh, a first question uh, about uh, those uh, separate attacks against candidates uh, in Baluchistan uh, province. What do you make of it? Well, there are um, two things happening. One is that we look at it in context of uh, electoral violence, which is going to happen in other parts of the country as well. I mean, from what I've heard, uh, sources say, security sources, that in Punjab itself, I mean, other than Balochistan, in Punjab itself, there is going to be violence tomorrow. Violence is expected. Balochistan is expected Firstly, because of its electoral violence, but also because of um, what is happening. There is Tehreek-e Taliban Pakistan um, and other militant groups which operate, and violence has been happening in Balochistan for longer. So it's continuation. It's two kind of separate kinds of violences um, which, which are happening in Balochistan. Yeah, and authorities, I'll put it to you, Azim Ibrahim, have been uh, trying to figure it out. Uh, they've, uh, we've seen, and uh, Pakistan's come in for criticism of it, uh, uh, the expulsion of, uh, uh, of Afghans who've been living in the country for, for a long time. Uh, Azim Ibrahim, this militant violence, is this just par for the course in any election si cycle? Do have uh, we do see lots of violence, but now we have a situation now on Pakistan's border where the Taliban have reconstituted itself and have been in power for almost a year, and now they are essentially in full control over that uh, border um, uh, between Pakistan and um, uh, uh, and Afghanistan. I remember the Pashtun-led Taliban have never really recognised the border. You know, you have Pashtuns on both sides of the border, and many of them claim that the Pashtuns should actually be united. And so this border has always been a bit of a problem. And now with the Taliban reconstituted and uh, in full control, you more than likely will see much more violence in that part. Jean-Yves Berthaud, when the Taliban returned uh, to power in Afghanistan, many were expecting that um, Pakistan would kind of be their conduit to the outside world. It hasn't panned out that way, though. Well, indeed, um well, first of all, uh, everybody remembers the uh, outburst of joy of the new prime minister when the uh, Taliban uh, took place. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, took power. Uh, so Iman Khan was uh, was extremely glad, and perhaps a little too much, and that certainly was reproached to him later by the Americans. Uh, the um, Pakistanis thought there would be the go-between the Taliban on one side and the international community and the West on the other side, due to their historical links with America, with some European countries. And, uh, well, it soon showed that uh, the Pakistanis themselves couldn't grant uh, formal recognition to the Taliban government.
because they were not giving, they were not consenting uh, the uh, political sacrifices that were needed in terms of public freedoms, women's condition, etc. The relations soured almost immediately uh, between Islamabad and, and, and Kabul. Yeah, the, the, the problem was that, well, first of all, the Taliban are people that don't want to have a boss. Uh, and that's a very Afghan thing anyway. But the Taliban are not, no different from other Afghan people. They don't want to be dictated what they should, how they should behave politically or culturally. They thought, okay, now we won this battle and we uh, intend to be our own and not to depend on the diktat of a neighbor that has always been extremely intrusive in uh, Afghan affairs, historically anyway. So once that was understood in Islamabad, it made it a bit more uh, difficult for the relationship to be really harmonious. Then there were reprisals and discussions, and then, of course, the Taliban had a tool in their hand, at hand. They had this tool that was the Terek, uh, I mean, the, the, the Taliban of Pakistan, Terek Taliban uh, Pakistan, uh, and they used it. They used it uh, in a bloody manner as well. And then there were retaliations, and what sort of retaliation can uh, a country like Pakistan envisage? Uh, Afghanistan being a, a landlocked country, it badly needs... Uh, a way out, and that only way out, almost only one, is are the borders of Pakistan, which can lead to Karachi, the harbor, for their trade, uh, for the, the goods they import. And that, of course, was, was um, a weapon that was used by the Pakistani authorities. So things worsened gradually, and indeed, um, the relationship needs to be rebuilt, but I suppose it will be rebuilt after Nawaz Sharif comes back to power. After Nawaz Sharif comes back to power. Okay, so that's a given already. That's said there by Ambassador Berthoud. Uh, Samin Mohsin Ali, uh, fast forward to today. Well, first of all, will people go and vote in uh, the, those restive uh, areas that border Afghanistan? Um, it's difficult to say. Obviously, the violence will have a chilling effect on voter turnout. Uh, equally, as uh, Dr. Sadiqa was saying, there is a risk of violence in Punjab as well, and that also threatens voter turnout in um, the most densely populated part of the country. Um, the crackdown on the PTI over the last many months also is something that might drive voters to stay at home because they feel like not only that there may be a risk of violence, but also that the process is not free and fair um, and that their vote won't make a difference. So, and everything is basically managed behind the scenes. So it really, I mean, it, it remains to be seen, and this is something that everyone who is an observer of Pakistani politics will be watching very, very closely, especially what young voters do. Samin, is that any different from, any, from previous uh, uh, elections? I think um, a lot of these issues have been there for every election. And, and even though the elections are competitive, the voter turnout has historically not been very high. But the crackdown on the PTI, the level of the crackdown is, is perhaps unprecedented. It's not that other politicians haven't faced crackdowns. They have, including Nawaz Sharif in, in 2017 and 18. But this time, the, the arrests and abductions and disappearances of PTI supporters, not necessarily senior leadership, but other people who were supporting them or who were campaigning on their behalf, 
um, violence against them has been at higher levels, and that might actually cause a significant change in voter behavior. Yeah, with many candidates jailed or barred from running the imprisoned Imran Khan, urging voters to still go to the polls, he prepared for this moment by pre-recording a message which was aired on X, formerly Twitter. Parties cannot be destroyed by banning, by disqualifying. Because the election is happening tomorrow. And I encourage you to come out and bring along those you know. Because through elections, you can shape a better future for yourself and your children. So there's foresight for you, Ish. Sadiqa, you know, uh, taping an announcement before you go to jail. Well, I think what's happening is that this is, in a way, a different kind of election. As uh, Samin uh, Mohsen Ali was, was saying, um, you know, the, the, the kind of election rigging that is happening is an unprecedented. I mean, 2018 elections would brought Imran Khan to power. Uh, were also manipulated. But the, manipul the level of manipulation that you see in these elections is unprecedented. Uh, what Imran Khan is trying to say is to push back because one of the one of the perceptions before election was that perhaps because he's in jail, the senior leadership is in jail, uh, PTI support base is going to feel very frustrated and not come uh, to vote. Uh, but this is something which may not prove uh, correct. And what he's encouraging them to do is go and vote because on the day, on the uh, on the polling day, rigging becomes then very difficult. Now, what the government is trying to do is very intelligent and, uh, and, and, and a bit naughty. What they're doing is that, for example, there are 10 people or six people in one household. They have put their uh, votes in very, on very different, you know, almost opposite, you know, uh, polling stations in opposite direction, which in, in almost trying to ensure that uh, turnout becomes low. And so they can claim that, you know, we didn't do much. That's how people voted and the turnout has been low. The government expects, at least in certain constituency, in urban areas in particular, they want turnout to be low. And what Imran Khan is trying to do and he's trying to battle is to prove that no people have come out and people, people have, have voted. Uh, uh, I think there, there are also two interesting dimensions here. One is that his party uh, has been salami sliced. There is a lot of repression. Um, you, know, uh, you know, Dr. Mohsen Ali, she was, she was talking about um, repression, which is, which is completely correct. But what is also happening is that they're trying to make sure that they don't, uh, you know, uh, come come for elections. But the other thing is that uh, the while the party has been held back, uh, the people may still be passionate and try to go and vote against Nawaz Sharif, who is being presented as the next electable, favorite electable for the military. And when the results come, let's see, you know, how have what would be the voting pattern? So people are either going to make sure that they vote for um, PTI, Pakistan Tehreek Insaf, Imran Khan's party candidates who have not been given a single uh, party symbol, uh, but they have independent individual symbols. So either they vote for them 
or so a lot of independent candidates or um, people may vote if, if they come out in droves then they may actually also hurt Nawaz Sharif but and then just vote, just right vote now, against him against the most likely candidate again who, who can who can vote against him I want to pick up on the point you just made just to explain for our viewers here uh, the the you talk about symbols uh, back in December the election commission withdrew the ubiquitous cricket bat symbol of Khan's PTI on ballot papers, uh, citing a failure to first conduct credible intra-party elections that's contested by the PTI in a nation where 40% of the population is illiterate it instead imposed random symbols on the candidates. In the capital Islamabad, PTI-backed candidate Amir Mughal was assigned the brinjal, the eggplant. He claims it presents obvious symbolic references to male anatomy in an attempt to ridicule the party. No matter, he says, he'll make the most of it. Um, I, I don't know the double meanings of uh, uh, the brinjal, uh, but uh, I know this thing. Uh, the brinjal is now famous uh, symbol in, uh, across all Pakistan, and uh, now this has become the king of vegetables. Okay, so using the, uh, that eggplant symbol to his advantage, uh, he claims, uh, Azim Ibrahim, the dice are loaded, yet the PCI is really trying to get out the vote. Yeah, so you, you have to ask the question, you know, why are we having these uh, elections at this particular time? There was a lot of ambiguity in terms of when these elections would actually occur. It seems that the, the military establishment are now very confident they have sufficiently dismantled the PTI and uh, dismantle the leadership of Imran Khan to have the election now. And your point about the symbol is actually very pertinent. You know, this is a country, as you indicated, that 40% of the people are illiterate. They only vote usually by identifying the symbols. And on top of that, the media have also banned the mentioning of Imran Khan. So they have essentially... Um, uh, sorry, the media have banned it or, uh, sorry, the, or the, it's self-censorship? Yeah, so the military have banned the media from mentioning Imran Khan. And uh, so they are sufficiently confident that the voters will turn out and uh, the PTI will not get a sufficient amount of uh, uh, support. And so, um, so there won't be a requirement for the post-electoral election rigging because that has all been done beforehand. And uh, so this is essentially a, an extended kind of process to ensure of the, the degradation of the democratic system in uh, Pakistan continues and the selected candidate uh, Nawaz Sharif uh, assumes office after this election. The, the military in the past, uh, it's had candidates it favored, candidates it doesn't. Uh, why is it cracking down this hard on Imran Khan? Because usually what's happened in the past when the individual candidate or a leader falls foul of the military, they usually go into self-imposed exile when they go quiet until they can mend their bridges. Imran Khan has been very stubborn in that respect. You know, he's not be he's not being uh, quiet as as it's expected. Um, uh, he's basically in prison and he's still managed to get some of the messages out. And his popularity, in fact, has soared since he's gone into prison. And the the popularity of the military has declined dramatically. This is an institution that's almost sacred to many Pakistanis as they see it as the establishment that's keeping the country together. They see it as defending the country from external threats. And people are now coming out in the streets and being critical of the military. So this is a very unprecedented situation, even for the military. You know, in the past, we've had the likes of Nawaz Sharif, who, who's been in and out of office a number of times. But he simply goes into exile, he mends his bridges, and he comes back 
and he plays and he plays good. But uh, Imran Khan has simply not uh, has not been willing to play ball in the same way. Hence, why they have taken such a strong hand against the dismantling of his party. Yeah, back in favor. Pakistan's three-time Prime Minister Nawaz mm-hmm. Sharif never finished a term. Um, we can show images there with. Uh, among the people there you see are his daughter Mariam at a Tuesday rally in Kasur, that's south of Lahore. At age 74, he's back from exile, his disqualification from office over these implication in the Panama Papers tax avoidance scandal is now something of the past. On the campaign trail, Sharif accusing Imran Khan's party of leading the country to ruin. We will not allow fraudsters to rule Pakistan again. They have ruined Pakistan. We will build Pakistan again, God willing. We will reconstruct this country again. These young people of 30 years, they will build this country by standing shoulder to shoulder with Nawaz Sharif and Shabazz Sharif and will play their role to build this country. Uh, Samin Mohsin Ali, uh, Ambassador Berto and I are, are old enough to remember when uh, uh, he uh, tried to sack the uh, head of the military, who instead staged a coup. What do you make of this return of, of Nawaz Sharif? Uh, luckily, I'm old enough to remember that as well. Um, it's a it's a it's a cycle as old as time. It's it's you know he's he was he came up because of uh, a military patronage. So they all had back in the 80s holds party-less elections. And that's where Nawaz Sharif arrives on the political scene. And as you said, he's fallen out of favor and then managed to come back in. Um, and all of the falling out is, tends to be you know, over things like foreign policy, especially relations with India, or over trying to exert greater control over foreign policy, which traditionally the military establishment does not appreciate. Um, but it's it's a it's a pattern that will continue to repeat itself because Nawaz Sharif, in my opinion, is making a huge mistake. He had when he was originally ousted in 2017-18 over corruption charges, he did take a stance actually quite, somewhat similar to Imran Khan's. He started campaigning and saying that you know they've thrown me out of office and you have to respect the vote and you know I've been hard done by with these corruption charges which are nonsense. And then he realized that he couldn't push that far enough. He landed in jail and then he decided to leave the country. So that compromise, I think, has locked us into this cycle, which has been going on for many decades and which we're not going to be able to break away from because the military establishment continues to play this kingmaker role. First, it was Imran Khan, now it's Nawaz Sharif. And potentially, with a weak coalition government coming in after tomorrow's vote, the military will continue to pull strings when it needs to, if it wishes to uh, control politicians in their decision making. Yeah, and to Ayesha Sadiqa's point that th- this could all backfire if uh, uh, PTI supporters don't see their favorite candidate on the ballot, they'll just vote for whoever is against uh, the, uh, uh, par- the, the Muslim League party of, uh, uh, of Nawaz Sharif. Yes, it's entirely possible. There's past precedents for what might be called a sympathy vote. Uh, some would argue that in 2008, when the PPP formed the national government at the head of a coalition, that was because uh, the election followed Benazir Bhutto's assassination and that there was a sympathy wave in votes. Um, so potentially that might be the case. But the question then arises to what extent um, will there be interference in election processes tomorrow? Um, and, and also not just on the day of tomorrow, but also with the results coming in over the next few days, and with independent candidates switching parties, um, deciding where they want to ally themselves. And that deci- those, those decisions by independents will only happen 
in the about two weeks following the election. And so that is going to be a really, really key moment in figuring out where the country is going to go. Ambassador Berthaud, uh, Nawaz Sharif was first prime minister of Pakistan in 1990. Is this the same man today? Well, I suppose he has understood a number of things. He had time enough to reflect upon corruption and things like this that he, well, he was uh, guilty of. And um, he will probably intend to rule the country in a different manner. Well, he is, a, is an intelligent gentleman and he will know how to cope with the army, I believe. Um, and... There is only one solution uh, for pa the future of Pakistan at the moment, is come to terms with its neighbors, all of them, try to finalize something with, with India, calm it down with the Afghans, and, uh, and restore a relationship with the West that would not be with uh, uh, permanent explosions of anger and uh, the use of militants to burn flags and such things. Well, I suppose a man such as Nawaz Sharif is, is able to understand that if he doesn't do that, the country is, is very close to uh, an explosion. But is, is he a prisoner of uh, this, these dynastic politics, which again, you don't see just in Pakistan. You see it as well in India and Bangladesh, uh, parties where it's the same family always that has, has the leader. It's the country that is the prisoner of dynastic uh, policies and politicians. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, what there is on the shelves, what sort of political offer there might be, he's probably the only one that could manage to do something and come to terms with the military. Ayesha Sadika? Well, you know, the thing is that uh, Nawaz Sharif is a, is, is a pragmatist. And... The reason the military, I mean, the fact is that the military brought him back um, also because, um, you know, they they saw him as they, they pushed him out. But then they realized that he may be the only answer in, in recovering, uh, you know, the country's economic and, and, and geopolitical fate. And he is being brought back in order to um, pull, push back and, 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 and to put the economy in place. I mean, the first agenda which will be on Nawaz Sharif's table is the economy, period, nothing else. And related to the economy means geopolitically, it means building bridges with the Middle Eastern countries like UAE, like Saudi Arabia, uh, he has sufficient contacts to, you know, to 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 bring uh, resources from there. Also, um, you know, India. India is a big issue here, and how you know to be carefully go and and talk to. Uh, let me also remind you that um, General Bajwa, which is the previous army chief, when he agreed and the army under him agreed to build fences with India. Uh, Imran Khan had backed out and completely taken a U-turn on that. Uh, he wouldn't go along. Uh, Nawaz Sharif is uh, is progressive when it comes to regional relations, and he will try to build those relations definitely. Uh, I think where he needs to be careful of, what Nawaz Sharif needs to be careful of, is not step on the military stones. So, his previous government, 2013 to 18, he took 
the previous uh, dictator, General Musharraf, to court. He, you know, he should avoid doing that with uh, General Bajwa or the former ISI chief. I mean, he's, he's very upset and angry with them, uh, Nabashari. Um, he should also try to be careful in taking ownership of everything from peace with India to relations with China or relations with United States. He has to be careful. The fact of the matter is that Nawaz Sharif has landed himself in a model of governance where the army chief now sits on the table as far as investment and economic policy is concerned. Uh, the army chief is, uh, is, is an advisory member of the Special Investment Facilitation Council, which is meant to bring money into Pakistan, foreign direct investment, so, uh, so is, 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 would, he, would Nawaz Sharif, as prime minister for the fourth time, be a, uh, a leader of Pakistan or <laughs> a glorified chief of staff? Something in the middle. I mean, he'll try to carve a role for himself, and it depends how relations with the military go. Uh, will they be... Uh, I mean, no one expects, at least I don't expect, that they're going to be smooth for five years. The question is, how smooth will they be? What kind of interference will they be? <coughs> will they let him make his economic policy? Will they let him select his uh, economic and financial team? Uh, will they let him... Uh, one of the major issues that uh, Pakistan has right now is with Afghanistan. Afghanistan and Taliban is something which is completely, almost completely out of Pakistan's control. So will the initiative be militaries or will it be Nawaz Sharif's? How cocky will Nawaz Sharif be vis-a-vis? -vis? And he is a man who has sufficient standing in Punjab, which is the largest and most important province of Pakistan, to kind of, you know, at least provide some challenge to the military. In the past, that has always ended up in his government getting sacked. Will it happen again? Will the chapter repeat itself? These are things that we uh, need to look at. Yeah, plenty of challenges indeed. Pakistan was on the brink of bankruptcy last July when the IMF approved a $3 billion lifeline. But it does feel like a stopgap. And it's uh, not funding from the likes of China and Saudi Arabia that will help Pakistan face rising poverty or increasing extreme weather after floods now comes water scarcity and unusually dry and mild winter as farmers worrying over crops in many parts uh, of the country azim ibrahim uh the the inbox is full um again we're talking as if it's a given that nawaz sharif will be uh, the, the the next prime minister uh, of pakistan uh, if so, can he, as you heard Ambassador Berthaud say, uh, thanks to his experience, carve out a role for himself and navigate his relationship with the military? Well, Nawaz Sharif has obviously had a number of attempts at this job, so I would imagine he's kind of learned his lessons and has managed to figure out how to navigate this space and uh, not trading in areas that are basically reserved for the military, and that includes defence and foreign policy and regional partnerships. I think what the military would want the Nawaz Sharif to do is focus exclusively on the economy and focus on more of the bread and butter kind of domestic issues. 
And uh, if you remember, Benazir Bhutto said a very famous phrase when she was elected as a prime minister, that she was in office but not in power. And she had absolutely no idea what the military was doing, you know, most of the time. And I think Nawaz Sharif has came, would, would have figured this out by now. You know, this is a country that's got some serious intractable problems. You know, inflation is running at over 20%. You know, it's touched 20, 29% just last year as a population that is expanding very rapidly. It stands at about 240 million people right now. And it's expected to reach over 400 million people by 2050, most of them young people in a country where illiteracy is rife. And so this is going to be one of the, it's going to be about the fifth largest country in the world in population terms. So got some serious challenges in terms of education and employment opportunities and economic opportunities for, for the younger people. So I think Nawaz Sharif's focus should be exclusively reserved to the economic area. And I think that is what the military expects uh, him to do is get a handle on that and get a control of that and leave all the other matters uh, to the military itself, which is uh, essentially um, uh, defence and foreign policy. And uh, Azim, uh, the, the, again, it's the question of uh, uh, having experience can be a plus or it can be a, a negative, again, in the context of this dynastic politics where uh, it's hard to be, harder to be in touch with that youthful uh, population, that youthful constituency uh, of the country. Why, why is it still this dynastic politics that rules uh, throughout the Indian subcontinent? Yeah, well, th this is actually one of the reasons why Imran Khan was uh, one of the reasons, not not the only reason, but one of the reasons why Imran Khan was popular is that, uh, you know, when people come to power in that part of the world, is India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, one of the first orders of the day is to try to maneuver to get their sons and daughters, their members of the family into key positions. And Imran Khan had absolutely no ambition to do so. You know, his two sons lived in England and uh, they had no ambition to actually enter into Pakistani politics. So kind of eliminated the dynastic kind of dy dynamic. And the same thing with Modi over in India. One of the reasons he was popular as well is because of the the, the, the dynastic kind of uh, enterprise that was set up by, by, the, by the opposition party in Congress. And so th this is actually one of the fundamental problems within that part of the world is that you have people that are essentially completely unqualified to hold some of these positions and they are given these positions. And the, the first pr priority is simply to try to get their sons and daughters into positions. Many of them have never even had a job, let alone try to tackle some of the most intractable problems that these populations are facing. Yeah, uh, do, would you put Bilawal Bhutto Zardari in that category? He's 37, but he's been leading... Uh, the, the party of the late Benazir Bhutto for more than a decade. He's the youngest foreign minister in the world, you know, um, uh, and uh, he, he's obviously a very capable young man, but would he have been in this position uh, were it not for his family and his father and his, uh, and his family name? Uh, I think that's a question most people would probably understand uh, the answer to, which is probably not. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, youthfulness in a nation where the median age is a mere 20.6 years. France 24's team spoke uh, with young people divided over whether to cast a ballot on Thursday. Uh, I am very disappointed, but still I am very hopeful as well. So these are little steps that you take to make a big difference. Okay, I will vote today. She, uh, okay, she's not voting. He will vote 
somebody else will vote so collect it, it is going to be a collective and a uh, collateral effort that we are going to make None of the leaders who have been in power have been able to improve our situation. It's only gotten worse with time. I'm disappointed. I'm a graduate and I sell popsicles. Young people who've studied have no future. They're ashamed of having to do odd jobs, even though they're highly educated. Yeah, the man you were uh, just listening to, Samin Mosinali, uh, has a degree in sociology. Uh, again, it's the question of uh, uh, whether or not people uh, will turn out. Turn, officially, turnout was 51% last time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it remains a question because, I mean, you can hear the sort of despair almost in, the, in, in these voices because they don't feel like it will make any difference even if they do turn out. Um, and that is a, a disaffection with politics on the whole, right? So it's a very much a perception that this is a game of, of elite musical chairs, effectively, um, and which has no, very little to do with the well-being um, of people or their needs. And, you know, you've mentioned climate disaster. You've mentioned possible uh, issues with crops going forward. All of these are issues that these people feel um, that politicians are out of touch with. Um, and, and the dynasticism obviously doesn't help. Um, and to add to the point about the leaders being dynastic, it's not just the leaders who are dynastic of the political parties. Dynasticism permeates all the way down. So whether it's a constituency politician or even a local provincial MPA, they are also dynastic. So so it's not just the top leadership which is dynastic. It permeates all the way through. There's no local governments that have been effective or even have, have, haven't been allowed to last for any length of time. So people genuinely don't feel represented. Uh, and Samin, we've been asking uh, whether civilian politicians are out of touch. How about the military? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think um, there is a sense of, uh, you know, Dr. Sadiqa can perhaps say more about this as well, but for the military, there's a huge concern about not just foreign policy and control over foreign policy, but also control over money. So, you know, there was this comment about Nawaz Sharif having learned his lessons, but the problem with trying to fix the economy in Pakistan is also coming up against the fact that the military budget is what it is. And that's a very significant percentage of GDP. So how do you navigate dealing with an economy that is on the brink of collapse when you have such large sums of money going to the military? So is the military then going to say, yes, you can have our money? That's extremely unlikely. So, you know, those kinds of butting heads will eventually come up as you try and improve the economy. And so the military's interests are definitely instability. But, you know, maintaining that level of stability and and just, you know, basic uh, provision of basic services, not clashing with the IMF, not clashing and and saying that the U.S. is uh, engaging in conspiracy theories, all of that will help with stability. But I don't know that it's going to go very far in terms of addressing the needs of people on an everyday level. Is this your Jean-Yves Berthaud? Is this, if we turn back the clock 30 years, is it kind of the similar dynamic what we're describing? Well, what happens nowadays is that really it seems that there is no perspective, economic perspective for Pakistan if they don't really take fundamental decisions. So, well, that really, as I was saying earlier, I suppose... The only way for Nawaz Sharif, who is an experienced politician and who probably understands that very well, is to uh, finalize uh, the the base for a discussion with the Indians. The Indians are busy on their borders with Pakistan, but also with China, and they wouldn't mind. And uh, so the time is kind of propitious to... uh, 
resolve in, in this direction. Now, uh, so you're saying there could be a thaw with India? Of course, that would have to wait until after India has its own general election. Yeah, but it's going to take place this year as well. In the spring, yeah. And well, and uh, there, there's a strong expectation that there will not be much change in India. So, um, well, of course, there are problems because Modi has uh, taken this decision uh, to withdraw the constitutional provision regarding Kashmir. Its special status. Its special status, and that probably would have to find some kind of solution. But if that happens, uh, well, that would alleviate the, the weight of defense in the budget of Pakistan, first of all, and could perhaps offer the possibility of allowing more funds for emergency uh, for the population. Ayesha Sadiqa, uh, all the candidates, I've been looking at some of their comments uh, on the campaign trail, talking tough when it comes uh, to Kashmir. Of course, we remember the Nawaz Sharif who attended Narendra Modi's first inauguration. Uh, do you see the same scenario as uh, Jean-Yves Berthaud? Well, <clears throat> you know, what has happened is if you look at the election manifestos of all the parties, mainly um, PT, um, sorry, Pakistan People's Party and Pakistan Muslim League, what becomes very clear is that um, they have highlighted significance of Kashmir, but they've also talked about, you know, reverting, reversal of what happened on, on August 5th. So basically, they are taking a position which is a bit more than what was expected. Now, one expected from uh, Nawaz Sharif that he was keen, he would be, he'd do trade and that he would negotiate, he would talk about Kashmir, but not posit Kashmir as something which can stop or hamper, uh, you know, uh, negotiations or, or relations with uh, between the two countries. Now, what has been happening lately is that right before elections and right before we can even think of anyone taking and, and making government, the army chief, uh, General Asim Munir, has actually laid out his foreign policy. And he says that he's not going to go back to uh, the, 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 the proposal or the formula suggested by his predecessor, General, the former army chief, General uh, uh, Kamar Javed Bajwa, and that India will have to restore statehood of Kashmir and ensure that the demographic shift, which uh, was something which, uh, you know, Indian government had, had decided on doing in Kashmir, which means anybody could come settle, buy property um, in, in, in Kashmir, that needs to be reversed. That need to be, needs to be reverted. Now, we know that um, one impediment is, is out of the way in the sense that um, the, the, the Indian Supreme Court has ordered the Indian government to hold elections. But the question of statehood, when will they do it? Uh, they will take the sweet time. Delhi will take its sweet time to do it. It's not going to do it because Pakistan wants it. And it's definitely not going to do it because a Pakistan which is, which is, is resource deficient, which is economically, uh, you know, in a poor condition, wants to do that. So I, I'm expecting that perhaps some track to some back channel conversations may begin around autumn uh, this year, 
after uh, if Pakistan is done with its, its elections, after India is done with its elections, and the two governments uh, are in place on both sides. But the question is, what will be the parameters? I don't think that the mm. army chief is ready to allow uh, Nawaz Sharif to really jump and say, all right, I'm going to have uh, trade and, and, and let's move on. I think they will be much more restrictive, number one. That's important to understand. So he's not going to be controlling the foreign policy agenda there. Not going to be and controlling secondly, the foreign Very yeah, quickly because yeah. we're out of time. Yeah. So uh, I think that is a problem uh, which we're going to be facing. And also a, a lot depends on what will be the dynamics of domestic dynamics between the new prime minister, uh, supposing it's, it's Nawaz Sharif, and the army chief. All right, and that's, of course, something we'll, we'll, we'll have to watch. Ayesha yeah. Sadiq, I want to thank you so much for joining us from London. I want to thank Samin Mohsin Ali in uh, Birmingham, uh, Azim Ibrahim in Chicago, Jean-Yves Berthaud, thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate. Every week, 